Hello, everybody. This week's podcast, while being very, very fun to record, uh, has been a, a horrible nightmare to edit um, because my microphone feed got deleted. So the audio quality about halfway through gets very dodgy on my end. But I just I had to delete whatever feed my microphone was was giving because I, I sounded like a Decepticon and it wasn't pleasant at all. So it, the audio quality dips ever so slightly and we're all going off of my guest's microphone. But um, yeah, hopefully it's not too bad. Thanks a lot. Over on Twitter recently, a teacher was complaining because they'd been criticised by a senior leader over the lack of VAK differentiation in their lesson. That's visual, auditory and kinesthetic approaches. Now this resulted in a storm of teacher tweets decrying the practice and lamenting the continued prevalence in education. I didn't start teaching until the mid-noughties, but the VAK learning styles were covered and encouraged throughout my PGCE and well into my teaching career. A lady named Olga Kazan, writing for The Atlantic a few years back, suggested that the learning styles began to emerge in the late 80s and early 90s as a result of the self-esteem movement where every child received a prize on sports day and if you failed to grasp a concept, it was because you hadn't been taught in the correct style. It all sounds a bit brain gym to me, however it turns out that this supposed myth is a hundred years old. The original VAK concepts were first developed by psychologists and teaching specialists such as Maria Montessori as early as the 1920s. But is it really a myth? And if it is, is it really a harmful one? Let's explore learning styles. With information into the world of education and tips on how to survive teaching, I'm Mr. M. These are my musings. Now I had a chat about this with my incredibly patient wife, whom you'll be aware of if you've read my blog, and she had an altogether different opinion. The following conversation was quite enlightening, so for the first time ever, we have a guest on the podcast! Lauren Headley has two master's degrees and is mere months away from completing a PhD in clinical medical research. Now, she's the first to admit that she's not a teacher, nor has she had any professional experience in a teaching environment, unless you count being a qualified scuba diving instructor, a qualified personal trainer, writing and developing a drugs awareness program for Keystays Chew's children, and, well, schooling me on a regular basis. <laughs> However, she has plenty of personal experience with different learning and teaching styles and enjoys a bit of research, so she's agreed to talk on their defence. Lauren, welcome. Thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. This is very cool. Um, uh, the way this is going to work is I will present my argument. And Lauren will present hers, and then we'll have a bit of a back and forth to see if we can reach a conclusion of some sort. There's no point scoring, and we're not looking for an overall winner. We're just having a discussion to see if there's a basis to the theory of different learning styles. Our baby boy is also joining us, and while he has done his research, being only one month old, his contributions will be limited to interruptive gurgles and grunts. I'm not going to edit them out. It will be a nightmare. So, I'm going to get going with uh, reasons why... VAK learning styles are a bad thing. So, in their paper, which has a really long title, and I'm not going to bother reading it, you can check the show notes, two researchers state that learning theories describe and categorise behaviours but fail to explain the developmental process and causal mechanisms that underlie these behaviours. So, you can be told or decide for yourself that you're a kinesthetic learner, and that's fine, but no one really understands why. So how can teachers possibly be expected to differentiate lessons to accommodate for it? Another problem is that learning style measures often use rank ordering. You go through a questionnaire and your answers score points against the various categories of learner. And this Cosmo style quiz approach forces one style to be ranked higher or lower than another. So you end up with children who are told they're visual learners, but have no idea to what extent they are visual learners. Was it 100%? Was it a mixture of visual and kinesthetic? If it was a mixture, how much of which are you? And getting back to the Twitter complaint, how do you differentiate for children who are a mixture of learning styles? 
Did you know there are 70 established styles of learning? It's bad enough focusing on three. Finally, research behind the idea that bending teaching to specific learning styles produces better achievement either doesn't exist or doesn't support the assumption. In fact, a paper from 1999 found that matching learning styles to instructional materials produced worse performance. On top of that, I found so many papers criticizing all sorts of tests into learning styles, everything from sample sizes to the models used to invalid and unreliable results were criticized. It's simply not provable. Those are all really excellent points, Carl. I think what's interesting about what you've said is that essentially the academic side of it is difficult to prove. It's difficult to apply when it's a very specific way. And it seems to be quite limiting. I do wonder, though, that just because there's a lack of validity and reliability in the learning style instrument, i.e. the questionnaires themselves were one of the key issues that resulted in the failure of the experiments or being able to identify actual results, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't learning preferences. You said yourself that being having to rank them means that just because you have an amount of visual learning in your style, that doesn't mean that you don't have the kinesthetic and you don't have the oral and you don't have the reading and writing element either. So really, for me, I'm kind of interested in how we can look at it in a perspective of how it could be applied in the classroom, just from anecdotal experience and and experiences that you've shared with me from your teaching and wonderful ways that you've gotten kids to learn. I wonder if actually teachers are probably doing it all anyway. And it's just an an extra tool to try and help kids learn different concepts. So I think while the instruments themselves aren't valid or reliable or easily tested, that doesn't mean that there aren't learning preferences. And and not just that, but the VARC method is only one learning style instrument of 13 major models. I know you mentioned that there are about 70. Most of those are just iterations of the rest. So the 13 major models are, are the more sole separatable ones. And they could be complementary too. So the Dunn and Dunn, Honey and Mumford, Felder and Silverman were three other key instruments that were very different. And they suggest different learning styles that contrast and complement the VARC instrument. For example, there's preferences and strengths based on a broad spectrum of elements, including external stimuli, like smells and sounds or what's going on in the room or is it too hot, which you could, I'm pretty sure you told me a story about when you uh, got kids to have an experience within the classroom to be able to enhance their writing. So that's a kinesthetic environment, I guess, but there's also visual and oral and being able to put on silly voices and all those things to be able to embody characters or imbue a feeling that then improves their writing or helps them understand their maths. But I guess that's just integrating everything you can into your teaching. And I think that's where we could use these, not we, I say we, I'm not a teacher, um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a learner. Um, so I think all of these ways you could put it together to just create a better learning environment. So I hope over this discussion, I'll be able to convince you that learning styles might still be a valid tool to use in the classroom, despite the lack of evidence in the instru- instruments themselves. Okay. Well, I mean, you, you're off to a strong start because you're already using my own personal examples <laughs> against me. So thank you for that. <laughs> Um, right, now, the um, the structure of today's podcast 
is all down to Lauren, who I, I invited on and said, oh, I'd love to interview you. And Lauren said, okay, fine, that's cool. How's it going to go? And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> we'll have a chat. So Lauren has actually structured things. So this is all thanks to Lauren. Lauren, what's the, what's the first point we're going to discuss? So I was, we've already looked at why learning styles could essentially have been debunked. You've given lots of academic references and papers that have shown that it just doesn't work. But what evidence is there that there are learning styles? Surely if there's this much research, they must think that there is a reason for it. So first I thought we could discuss our results on the VARC questionnaire. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I went and looked up a questionnaire. So I was like, what are these? It's 16 questions and it'll tell me exactly the kind of learner I am. That's amazing. Imagine if you could do that for other stuff. So what did you get? Were you surprised by your result? Um, well, I wasn't actually. Frustratingly, I wasn't. <laughs> so, um, so the VARC method is in, includes reading and writing as well as visual, oral, and kinesthetic. And I found something interesting. The person who created the VARC test found out later that VARC is Dutch for pig. Um, and he couldn't get a website called VARC.com because a pet shop in Pennsylvania used it for selling aardvarks. Apparently aardvark means earth pig. Aww. So there we go. Anyway, so I did this VARC test and I asked all the questions. And I'll link it in the show notes. Because what I liked about this questionnaire, unlike others, is you got to give more than one response to each question. It wasn't really obviously leaning one way or the other. Mm. And because of my degree, I'm, I'm very, I'm terrible to give a questionnaire to because I think, oh, I see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, let's see if I can deliberately throw a spanner in the works here. But I came out as strongly kinesthetic, which when I did my PGCE and we all had to do these tests, it wasn't a VARC test, it was a different one, I came out as strongly kinesthetic, which is learning by doing, which I kind of do. I suppose that reflects in my teaching style as well. because I'm oh, Actually, if I could interrupt, that's yeah. really interesting because teaching others is actually a kinesthetic oh, shut learning up. mode. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. How about the rest? Uh, what, what, what rest? Like, so, so your oral and your reading... Oh, it barely like, came up. Really? Yeah, it was That's like, really interesting. You're, you're so kinesthetic, don't even bother. But I do enjoy reading, and I do... But then I, you you can talk about this in a minute, because I thought kinesthetic was strictly learning through doing. And then you did some research and found out that kinesthetic was actually interacting with media. Mm-hmm. So I'll let or you people, Yeah. So for me, I was quite surprised that my kinesthetic score was quite high. Actually, what they found with a lot of college students and university students was that kinesthetic was quite high, which surprised me because I had I assumed that people that are successful at university are probably good, unlike me, are good at sitting and listening in a lecture theatre for hours on end, which I found horrendous. Second to that, uh, I was actually a, a visual, I'm more visual, which makes sense because I enjoyed organising this. I like making spreadsheets, flowcharts schematics Gantt chart. oh yeah i made a gantt chart for when we made a group roast dinner <laughs> to make sure that everybody knew what they were doing so i am very uh visual followed by kinesthetic then read write which i guess has probably been more trained into me over the last eight years of university and then um auditory which i i'm not great with auditory instructions waiters reading telling me what those on the menu i will forget the first thing they've said so i think it it reflected my preferences but again the questions were saying how would you prefer to receive this information um would you learn best through watching a video i.e you had to make up a a piece of ikea furniture would you rather watch a youtube video of somebody making it read the instructions watch the look at the diagrams etc so i think it helped sort of filter out the kind of preferences the vart questionnaire that we did 
also allowed you to pick as many options as you wanted. So you could pick all four or skip it entirely. Oh, I didn't know you could skip it. Yeah. Because I don't read, because visual... <laughs> so, the, the, so those reflect kind of learning styles. We're, we're going to start saying maybe a little bit. But what does that mean? Like, how yeah. does that... What does it matter? Yeah, but I think it's in, in the classroom, from personal experience, I know that you can be at the front of the room and delivering, um, say, a maths lesson mm. or an English lesson, and some children won't get it. Now, I'm guessing that's a very visual and oral, because mm-hmm. they're seeing what you're writing but they're not interacting with it. Mm-hmm. And they're listening to what you're saying. And then I know that I've said to children, we'll come up and have a go. Mm-hmm. We'll come up and show me your way. And just that act of them writing out themselves, something clicks. Mm-hmm. So I guess that... that shows it. So, yeah, and this is the problem. I don't think anyone is one learning style. No. And I, I, I think it's unreasonable to expect evidence of learning style differentiation in lessons. I think as well, you're going to, especially at, well, I, I I assume it's been a long time since I've been at primary school. I assume that there are much more opportunities to have multimodal methods of interacting with your learning environment than there are at university when you're just given a handout and not told anything or given a lecture with slides that are completely useless because they're just <laughs> rammed with text that doesn't make sense. So I think Perhaps in a in a primary environment where you can interact with a whiteboard, where you can have a whiteboard on your desk, where you can make notes or use tools or have a discussion potentially if you're allowed to talk, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, no, especially. Sorry to interrupt, mm. and we will move on to the next point. But um, specifically, an English example: children who find it very difficult to use commas to subordinate clauses or just even separate clauses from from main clauses, writing out the entire sentence on border paper. Primary teachers, if you're listening, border paper is your friend. <laughs> Write out a sentence on border paper and physically rip it up so you can move the sentence along and drop in mm-hmm. the subordinate clause. And again, that act of physically dropping it in, is that purely kinesthetic or is that kinesthetic with read and write? Or Exactly. I think it's and it's probably going to be a combination of, of multiple things, yeah. depending on how you do it. I think essentially the whole goal is to use whatever methodology you have and then hopefully the learner will become able to internalize the concept and, you know, do the maths in their head or do whatever in their head mentally without needing the aids. But I wanted to go back to the story that I, I used at the beginning. Would you mind retelling the story you told me? It was about you were trying to get these kids to do some good writing. Oh, yeah. So uh, we were studying, we've done it a couple of times, but we were studying Darwin mm-hmm. on the Beagle. And um, we needed the children in year six, so 10, 11 year olds, we wanted them to write a diary entry as a member of Darwin's crew. So we'd studied the Beagle and we found out that the rooms were really small and some of the shipmates had to sleep with their feet on chests of drawers because there just wasn't the room. So what we did was we pushed all of the tables into the middle of the classroom. Mm. We whacked up the temperature in the room. On the interactive whiteboard, we had an image of the sea and the noise of a creaking boat. We put all of the bags and all of the coats in the middle, in the, and we said to the children, right, find a space. You cannot leave the tables. It was a tiny, tiny space. Find a space. Underneath, on top of, wherever. So they did. And then we said, now get your books, which they did. And then we said, write a diary entry. And there were complaints that they were cramped and awkward, and someone's foot was in my eye, and no, yeah. shut up. Right. Mm. 
right using these situations. But I've told you other stories where I've I've goaded children yeah. to the point where they want to punch me because they said, oh, I don't know how to write an angry character, so I've got them angry. Mm. But I think that's it, this kind of immersive experience. And I think that brings me on to my another point that I wanted to add. If we weren't all sort of multivariate learners, then, you know, from books, we would have only ever expanded to the internet sharing text. And yet YouTube is a tool that the younger the learner, the, the more they're using, more more interactive, like Instagram and TikTok and God knows what the next thing's going to be. But these things wouldn't exist if you didn't need a different way of taking in your information. So I think that's that's further evidence of different learning styles. But you, you mentioned earlier on that there was a sort of negative association with brain gym. What is it and why do teachers hate it so much? Well, let's talk about brain gym. Brain gym was this fad teaching fad, they come around every now and again, uh, in the early, well, early to mid-2000s, that stated children would learn so much better if they had a brain break. Now, th- this is what gets me about these fads. Having a break is a fantastic idea, and I don't think anyone's going to argue against taking a break. And that fits in with the kinesthetic learner, to have physical separation between learning sections. Okay. And also, lo- lots of advice online is where mm. for 50 minutes, have a 10-minute break. Yeah. But where Brain Gym took it to the next level, um, where it kind of slides into the VAK learning style debate, is Brain Gym argued that if you said your alphabet, but you raised your left arm on every vowel and your right arm on every consonant, or if you turned around saying colours that were written in a different colour, so all of these various things would trick your brain into learning more. Why? Absolute nonsense. Absolutely. It's been proved not to work. And I got into a lot of trouble for stating that it had been proved not to work in one staff meeting. So I think yeah. these kind of brain myths, they resurface every few years. Mm. And, you know, words like neurolinguistics get thrown around. Oh, wow. Fancy. Ugh. And because it sounds important, mm. usually head teachers dive into it because, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can do this. This is pupil voice. Um, and I think learning styles has that kind of tinge to it okay so purely by association with brain gym and the sort of it's almost similar it just puts you off yeah Yeah. okay that makes sense i think it makes sense then to move on to why why the social sciences are quite difficult (laughs) (laughs) now just just for context lauren's degree is proper science no it is it is you do the terminology is bad as well saying something is a hard science or a soft science that's (laughs) i think it's unfair because psychology, neuroscience, all of these things and and how brain function is just very, very complicated. Whereas measuring things in a petri dish or cells or taking human samples, those are complicated too, but at least there are fewer variables. You don't know how motivated a cell is to produce something, so it's not as difficult. Anyway, just for context, so Lauren's degree is in proper science. My degree was in uh, soft science. So just context on that. Let's let's hear why, why soft science is problematic. I agree, by the way, soft science. Read my dissertation and you'll see how problematic soft science can be. I think in part it's the experimental design issue. Mm-hmm. For example, these the questionnaire we did was only 16 questions. You wouldn't want to make it too many more. People wouldn't. It's also self-administered. So you, you choose your answer. You don't have it validated by an external source. So if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get the wrong outcome. Oh, and there's no empirical way to prove any kind of qualitative 
Yeah, it's research. really difficult. I, I did lots of questionnaires for my dissertation, and the only way we could validate it and use numbers and statistics in any way was for me to come up with some sort of coding mm-hmm. to interpret people's answers and say, oh, well, from that, I think they're talking about this. Yeah, interpretation, the the, the space for interpretation, unless people say the correct code words. But again, that, that isn't necessarily yeah. uh, correct. Which I guess is why there's always papers saying it's impossible to prove. That's because it is impossible to prove. But just because something is impossible to prove, it doesn't mean it isn't real true yeah. yeah exactly i think the other the other issue is statistically you can probably prove anything as long as you have the right statistical outcomes that you wanted and a big enough number of people and there's a few other and as long as these assumptions are met you can probably find out whatever you wanted but yeah. again there is lots of unknowns and motivations and things like that some of the variables that i saw come up as potential issues for things like socioeconomic environment, the school, the home, the family, the neighborhood even, and the culture of the school, and the teacher. Mm. So it's really difficult to, to use these tests to be able to find any particular outcome. But when it comes to applying these concepts, I don't think you necessarily need to really lean on the studies and more think, how can I use these concepts in, in the classroom instead? Yeah, we'll come on to that actually. Remind me because I'll forget. I'm about to, okay, to, to rank. But, um, well, not rank. Okay. But no, it's interesting because I think part of the problem is it stems from people assuming, back to what I was saying, that you are one or the other. Whereas you've come up and you said you're multimodal. You are a bit this, a bit that. And the VARC uh, questionnaire does give you that option to so say, you're a bit mm. this, you're a bit that. And it breaks it down and tells you what you are. And I think that's really because I, I, I read a paper that said they gave students an activity to do that suggested what learning style they were and then they gave the students a questionnaire to complete and the 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 hits that like you would expect the activity in the questionnaire to return the same learning style Hmm. but actually this the hit rate was less than 50 percent on average it was a 30 percent hit rate of success in that experiment so it was deemed a failure Mm -hmm. however i think maybe well no, you have learning preferences, as you said, and you have maybe an innate learning style based on how you've been taught in the past, like you said, home life, mm-hmm. personal preferences, and I, there, there's no reason why you can't have a mix of the two. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I told you to remember something. Yep, to, to the practical application of the concepts. Rather... Oh, damn it. <laughs> no. No, forgotten. Okay. Go on. I think one of the other things is for you, your, your, your focus is typically primary. Most of these studies have been done on college age children. So I think the application with, with how it will reflect on primary age could be completely different because your motivation is, is different. I think older kids are inherently more aware of the importance of their grades, whereas primary age kids, I, I have no idea how motivated a nine year old is at, at, getting straight A's and getting into an Ivy League school. I mean, you'd be surprised. Really? I, I okay. Take, I take your point. Uh, I certainly was more interested in playing in the playground <laughs> at that age. But I know there have been schools where they've really, really highlighted learning styles and they've spent so much money. This is another argument. It takes money to do these things in yeah. days. And they've assigned children their learning styles. And either children have done what I did mm-hmm. and just gained the test so that they were the same learning style as their friend, or they've been really upset because 
all of their friends are visual learners and they're kinesthetic learners, so they're now different. They are other. Mm. And we were discussing this yesterday. That socially, there is a bit of a stigma mm-hmm. attached to being a kinesthetic learner. Agreed. Working with your hands. You know, anything that isn't academic book learning. Mm-hmm. And the government are trying to uh, correct this with T-levels, but they're, they're still pretty... Have you heard of a T-level outside of me talking about them? No. No. So, to everyone else, they're still... Less vocational mm-hmm. qualifications, which, like we said, are deemed to be less than, mm-hmm. even, even though they're not, they are more useful yeah. than people like me who can just teach you how to analyze a poem beautifully, <laughs> but could not fix your car. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's definitely one of the the elements, the stigma. Maybe there's a history in that in sort of getting into grammar schools versus, well, you didn't get into grammar school, so you've got other options you didn't get it because you're a kinesthetic learner maybe I, yeah i don't know but it is in, that's why i particularly thought it was interesting that the statistics on the evidence that there is academically focused on actually saying that the academic students were kinesthetic learners the high achieving students were kinesthetic mm. but perhaps that's because they were using multimodal learning to just take in as much as they could and perhaps out of the lecture theater they are applying things in a kinesthetic way or teaching others, or doing things that are See, laterally kinesthetic. Sorry to interrupt, but that's another thing mm. that you found out that I didn't know, and I'm the one that's had the, the teacher training on this. I didn't know that teaching other people was considered kinesthetic. It's an interaction. And see, I think that's what they, they've gone for this lovely word. Oh, it's, it's kinesthesia. Mm. It sounds wonderful. But interactive learning, Yeah, I could get on board with. Agreed. Because I'm a very interactive teacher. So essentially, it sounds like we're getting to the point where we're saying the problem is actually how it's been promoted to teachers to, to use as a tool, that it's kinesthetic is blocks or tools or aids in some physical format that's, that's a, something you have to buy, I guess. Mm. And visual is posters or just art or diagrams. Oh, no, totally. I've had head teachers that have come into my classrooms and said, you need more posters on the wall for your visual learners. Right. Okay. So it sounds like there's been a mismatch in the understanding of what the concepts are instead of how to teach it and how to apply it. Which brings us back to the association with Brain Gym. Yeah. And just the pseudoscience of it. There's a, there's a little grain of actual useful neuroscience, I guess. Yeah. But it's hidden under so much guff. Okay. And it's the guff that seems to penetrate into the classroom, often by force. It's very rarely teachers that are going out and saying, I shall teach only my audio learning. <laughs> yeah. It tends to be people who aren't currently teaching that push mm-hmm. for this inclusion of nonsense. When you said it earlier on, you summed it up perfectly like, in the first five minutes. So well done for listening this far. <laughs> if your teaching is high quality, you'll be addressing all of these learning styles anyway. Mm-hmm. And that, if you've got children with special educational needs or disabilities then you, sh- you should be teaching in a style that they can access as well, which will involve all of these things. Mm-hmm. And probably the, the done and done ones and the Honey and Mumford. And yeah. I think, in a way, just reading the documents and understand well, documents, reading the sort of studies and understanding the sort of concepts around it just could furnish you with a bit more tools to use to sort of say okay I'm definitely adding a bit more kinesthetic or oh I haven't done this kind of activity in a while maybe I should reintroduce that but again I I guess it'll depend on the activities themselves I 
apologize. I, I, I'm speaking as if I'm in a classroom. I'm not at all. I'm, I, I'm, I'm typically on the learning side of things and <laughs> I've, I've unfortunately not had amazing teachers. I don't know how I've made it this far. So maybe it would be useful to look at the, the VARC learning style sort of styles themselves and the modalities in which they're covered. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Lauren's made, because she is slightly visual, she's made this beautiful table. Um, do you want to pick your favourite one from each? Because otherwise we'll be here until next Thursday. Yeah, I think the ones that are, I think the obvious ones are auditory and read and write. So mm-hmm. I won't go over those. So I'll go over the visual. Yeah, we've discussed a lot of the kinesthetic things already. Haven't mm-hmm. we? So I think... Wait, no, sorry. Using analogies and stories is kinesthetic. Apparently. Wow. So do you want to do kinesthetic? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's do visual. Okay. Because it's a podcast, so that okay. makes the most sense. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Everything you can see, I'll be telling you about. I do wonder if anybody listening is actually not a particularly auditory learner. I do listen to podcasts, and I am I'm, auditory was my minimal one but you can listen to it while you're cycling or whatever or doing the dishes so i wonder if anybody listening is actually more of a kinesthetic learner or an, or a an, uh, visual learner yeah with visual there was diagram schematics flowcharts drawings those kind of things but there's also highlighting and white space and color so one of the things that the one a couple of the papers mentioned was that visual learners typically they, they don't write much, but when they do write, they keep their, their sort of notebooks very tidy looking and they like to clearly define where things are on the page, which I definitely do. And usually I make sure that my handwriting that is there is very, very neat and I like things categorized and separated. But again, another important factor is teachers' body language and visual and facial expressions help imbue how they're supposed to feel about it, how they're supposed to interact with the concept itself, which you might not necessarily know. So if if the teacher is constantly talking to the whiteboard and not actually talking to the the children or the the students, that might impact their learning. Absolutely. Impacts mine. Well, yeah. So I I think... On the very basic level, because this happens a lot at university, I just, if someone's talking to their whiteboard, I think, okay, I might as well not be here then. Yeah. You, You want to be interact with i'm i'm not so fussed with that because i'm autistic so i don't particularly like eye contact but body language and stuff like that are can be useful for me to understand is this a good thing is this a bad thing Do you, you know how excited are they about it that's great and so we'll, we'll stick this in the show notes do you, I, I i think we've kind of reached a conclusion mm-hmm. i'm just going to check my notes because i i i'm still very much i don't like the idea of enforcing a specific learning style or or enforcing the differentiation i think let teachers teach i agreed and if we if we're teaching well we'll be doing all of these things anyway yeah so i think the frustration is coming from external forces affecting how we teach yeah. because i the, everything you said i find myself agreeing with so i'm glad this wasn't point scoring <laughs> because i would have lost Yeah, I've got a little conclusion. So I figured that there were three points of how it could be useful and and how teachers are probably already using it. It just could make teaching easier to plan because while we can all learn through all the methods, some might be easier to click using a different style. Maybe it's easier to work out fractions using blocks or letting kids figure out with the blocks rather than giving them the answer or letting them work with a partner or whatever. Or don't you already use schematics before you make electrical circuits? Yep. 
So that's already a visual and interactive kinesthetic and potentially if they're doing group work auditory as well. Or it could be part of the learning progression in itself. Or it could go from counting with fingers to then being able to internalize it. And then secondly, making a task a little harder or easier could be better facilitated with this kind of differentiation. For example, giving an image or video instructions might be easier to follow than written directions, much like an exam where you you tell people the questions and they have to answer it. My third point could help kids improve the learning styles in which they're weaker, because if they intend to go on to more academic pursuits and they'll need to sit in a lecture theatre for hours and they're exclusively a kinesthetic learner and you don't address the auditory and the visual, that'll really put them at a disadvantage. So essentially, in primary anyway, it sounds like it's a good opportunity to help expand their capacity for other learning styles too. So those are my points. So despite the validity and reliability of the instruments themselves, I think there's a lot of practical application that could really benefit students' learning. Yeah. So I, I guess the conclusion is... Next time you're accused of not addressing learning styles, just stand up straight and tall and say, yes, I am. Yeah, basically. Or you could print out the little table we've got and just <laughs> have it somewhere just direct, to show. Direct any naysayers to this podcast <laughs> and the show notes at mrmsmusings.com and uh, you'll be golden. Send them my way. I'll sort them out for you. Okay, great. Lauren, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. And uh, yes, I'm going to do my... Uh, my closing off bit Mr M's Musings the podcast was written and edited by Carl Hadley Morris the music is Busy City by Track Tribe if you like what you've heard please let me know by leaving a rating or dropping me a comment in Twitter similar content can be found at www.mrmsmusings.com and you can hire Mr M to tutor your child or speak at your school head over to www.igniteeducation.co.uk or email info at igniteeducation.co.uk for more information thanks for listening and I will catch you next time 